Well, this past week, uh, I was doing some continuing education up at Regent College at the annual pastor's conference. It was fantastic, which means I was not preparing a sermon for this week. Uh, so rather than winging it or uh, pulling something from the archives, we have something much better. We have uh, Reverend Rick Mylander here. Uh, Rick is a, a veteran covenant pastor. He is a spiritual director, and uh, currently he is in transitional pastor work, which means that he goes in when there's a mess in a church, and he, uh, he helps stabilize things and point out truth and, and does God's work there. Um, Rick's wife, Gail, is here. Welcome. And uh, they currently reside in Coopville over on Whidbey Island. Four children, nine grand. And uh, another fun fact is 11 years ago, Corey, my wife, and I were in a church planter's assessment, um, pressure cooker of stress and all kinds of, and Rick was on that team. Uh, so it's partly his fault if you don't like me being your pastor. He, he okayed us. So um, no, let's give uh, Rick a warm welcome as he comes to share God's word. Yeah, that assessment center is otherwise known as the Estressment Center. Way more stressful for the assessees than it is for those of us who are assessors. But yeah, good evening, Lettered Streets. It's, it's, I've not been with you before, so this is, this is marvelous. I've heard a lot about you. I've followed Chris and his ministry over these 10 years, and um, I just am I'm really pleased uh, to be with you tonight. I can't remember if it was the last time I was in Bellingham or the time before. We're new residents to uh, Pacific Northwest. But one of the last times I was here, it was for Fernando Ortega's concert. So it was nice to read or sing that Fernando Ortega uh, song there. That was kind of fun. I don't think I'd sung that one in worship before, except at my home with my wife or in the car with my wife. So it was wonderful to be able to do that. So yeah, I've, I, don't know, I don't know how it is that I've been a covenant pastor for f 45 years. I kid you not, it's really weird. I started as a 19-year-old uh, in my own church in Chicago, so it just, uh, it just blows my mind to think that the time has passed like that. Um, and then uh, after that, going to seminary, coming out of seminary, I was a, a covenant pastor for about 20 years east of here a ways, and uh, then about 20 years on conference staff in the Midwest Conference as their associate superintendent and their director of church planting, which was what allowed me to be in fellowship with Chris and his family, his wife, and so many other covenant church planters over the years. And it's been a blast. It really has been a blast to follow them through these years and to, to see some of these folks that, that I worked with assessing over 20 years ago. Um, so it's just kind of fun to be with you and to uh, enjoy this worship and be blessed by our worship tonight, knowing that somehow by the grace of God, uh, just an infinitely small part that, that I've been able to play in, in your founding, and, and that's a deep, deep blessing to me. So thank you for the invitation to be here tonight. As Chris said, we live over in Coopville. Uh, we've, only been, uh, we've only been here for about a year and a half, although for the year prior to that, I was working with Newport Covenant in Bellevue uh, as their transitional pastor in a difficult circumstance. And um, since we left there, we've also served a church in Salem, Oregon, and now we are um, awaiting new call. We are not praying for a crisis to happen in a church uh, so that we have a place to go, but we want to be ready uh, when that time does come. So I just want to wish you grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ as we've gathered here to worship together tonight. And uh, it is truly a pleasure to be with you. And, you know, if I'm around on, on Whidbey Island, I'm glad to come back when you need a break, you know, but I'm also glad to go up to Regent sometime and 
do the kinds of things that you're doing up, up there as well. I've heard a lot about that school and the kinds of pastors that uh, they have equipped over the years. So God be with you tonight. In fact, let me just say as I begin to preach, the Lord be with you. Thank you so very much. You know, I am, I am not certain of who said it first, um, but this statement that goes, the church is the only organization known to humankind that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church is the only organization known to humankind that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And it's a great quote. And as a pastor and administrator over these 40 years, I've enjoyed reminding the people that I work with of this very fact. In fact, I like to challenge them to be what I call 50-plus churches, places where at least 50% of their efforts go toward the blessing and the benefit, the care and the service of those who are not there. It's a different kind of an approach to ministry, and yet I feel it's a, it's a critical part of what we're called to be and to do. But now here's the dilemma. People need the Lord, okay? Grant me that. Do you believe that? People need the Lord. We all need Jesus. All people need Jesus, whether they know it or not. But you and I can quickly become overwhelmed by that fact. You know, we know people need Jesus. By the way, you can throw up the first, uh, the first slide there. That would be great. It's just our title slide, if you're fired up and ready. There we go. Ordinary people, extraordinary mission. Um, we know that people need Jesus, and we know that it's our uh, responsibility to testify to this fact in such a way that people will find him. But we are no Billy Graham. We're just ordinary people. You and I are just ordinary folks. Now, I want you to stay with me on that thought, because we're going to come back to it uh, in a little while, but I want to share two images with you uh, before I do. Next slide, please. I remember about 20 years ago, maybe a little more than that, some of you will remember this too, when explorers discovered the wreck of the Titanic on the floor of the North Atlantic. Some of you remember that? Not the wreck. I mean, you'd have to be as old as me in order to remember the wreck itself, but um, the, the, the discovery of it. And I think uh, the first big splash came out in National Geographic. Uh, back in the late 90s, mid 90s, at some point in time, where they published article uh, with lots of photos of artifacts on the ocean floor. So um, um, I think it was. I think these probes were unmanned. In fact, at that time, I think since then they've been able to create probes that can go down that deep. But at that point, these were unmanned sea probes, and they were snatching artifacts off the sea floor and bringing them up to the surface. And these articles, these historic pieces that had been on the bottom of the sea started going on traveling display all over the Western world in our great museums. And very soon after that, by no coincidence, James Cameron's blockbuster movie hit the screens. And it was, it was more than a disaster movie because it was part of our history. You know, um, as we walk his, watch historical movies, uh, I remember as my children were all young and we were going to be going to um, Normandy, France, I made our children, even though none of them, I think the oldest was 17, three others below that, we watched 
uh, Saving Private Ryan together because it's history. And it was, it was important for our kids to understand the nature of the sacrifices that took place on the Normandy Beach. Well, this movie also was history. In fact, as important in history in its time as 9-11 is in, in our day. It was that uh, much of a, of a shell shock, that much of a, of a world rock. It was a piece of, this movie was a piece of history and the movie won more Academy Awards at that time than any movie prior. I'm not sure uh, if others have done it since. But I want to think a moment, just a moment, and this, it's an intense kind of a thinking. I want to think about the wreck itself and the immediate aftermath of the sinking. It's pretty accurately portrayed in the movie, actually. The movie came out at about the 85th anniversary of the sinking of, uh, in the, in the, it was the late 90s, and at that time, there were still a few survivors that were alive and uh, people who were interviewed when the movie came out. One of them was an elderly woman by the name of Eva Hart. And I remember reading an interview with her. Survivor Eva Hart remembered that night, April 15, 1912. Different kind of a shipwreck than some of us experience on April 15th these days, but... Uh, when, when Eva Hart was a young girl, she witnessed this. And it is a shipwreck of legend. I mean, those people in my generation, my parents' generation, it was a big, big deal. My generation, you know, I'm 60-something, so I also think of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, you know, thanks to Gordon Lightfoot and the song back in the 70s. You know, but you, there are certain of these shipwrecks that, that come, become somewhat part of our cultural legends. And it is a shipwreck of legend. Two hours and 40 minutes. Two hours, 40 minutes after an iceberg tore a 300-foot gash in her starboard side, the supposedly unsinkable Titanic went down in 12,000 feet of water, slipped below the surface at 2.20 in the morning. 1,500 people lost their lives out of a total of 2,200 who were on board. Eva Hart was interviewed, and she said, I saw all the horror of the ship's sinking, but what I heard was more dreadful. I heard the sounds and the cries of people, some of whom were dying. I can't forget those sounds. It stayed with her at that point for uh, 80, 85 years. Next slide, please. Now, I've only been on one cruise in my life. And some years ago, my wife Gail and I and her siblings and their spouses and our spouses took my in-laws on a cruise in the Inland Passage to Alaska for their 50th wedding anniversary. And by the way, I'm pretty, Gail and I are pretty excited because next, next uh, Sunday, we are going to Israel with our four kids and their four spouses something my in-laws did for us back in the 80s, and something Gail and I had always looked forward to being able to do. So I'll have another kind of an epic trip coming up. But that experience with her parents, just her three sibs and the spouses and her parents, just the eight of us, we had such a great time. It was a great trip. But um, I had never been on a cruise before, but I heard, we were told uh, before we got aboard, that a half hour after departure, you know, they let you line up on the side so you can 
watch I'll wave if there are people there that are at the, the, the shipyard or the, whatever they call it, the, 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 the docks, the wharfs. Um, it said a half an hour after our departure, there was going to be a mandatory uh, life-saving drill, a mandatory drill, lifeboat drill, and attendance would be taken so that they can determine that you know, they know you know where you go and what you do and who's in charge at your station. Interesting to me, no lifeboat drill was ever done on the Titanic. It was unsinkable after all. And so although 20, only 20 lifeboats or life rafts were launched, far too few, and most only partly filled, many of the passengers who were able to make it to the water safely ended up struggling and dying of hypothermia in the cold water, in the icy seas, while those in the lifeboats waited a safe distance away. Now, to be fair, in a, in a shipwreck, filled lifeboats are supposed to get out of the ship's sink zone. So they're not damaged when the ship goes down. But then there, once the ship goes below the surface, they are supposed to immediately go back into the sink zone and pick up survivors. But only one lifeboat did that. And the movie historically portrays this. And of course, it picks up the heroine of the movie, which uh, some of you will recall that scene. Lifeboat number 14 rode back after the ship slipped from sight and the movie portrays this accurately. If you look closely, you'll see a number 14 painted on the side of that lifeboat. All alone, lifeboat 14 chased cries in the darkness that got quieter and quieter over the course of time, seeking and saving a precious few. Incredibly, no other boat joined them. Now, it was chaos. You know, those of you who've seen the movie know the chaos. Uh, you can imagine the chaos. Some of the boats were already overloaded, but in virtually every other boat, those already saved rode half-filled boats aimlessly in the night. It was overwhelming because each of them feared a crush of unknown swimmers that could cling to their craft and maybe swamp it, make it dangerous for those who had been safely put aboard a, a, a boat. So, here's the truth of what I'm trying to say. Saving others, sometimes, and for our purposes, bringing our friends, our family, and our neighbors to Jesus Christ, the fact that that responsibility falls to us, sometimes seems as overwhelming as that. That we should be asked to do that that we should be asked to risk, risk a relationship in order to get the word out about Jesus. You know, we're, we're just ordinary people. Again, we are just ordinary people. Now, I said earlier I had two images. Both of them are historic images. So hold that one, the image of the Titanic, and one lowly lifeboat, number 14, and some, let's, let's picture something else not that dramatic, but also something historic. Next slides, please. I want you to return 
with me. Oh, keep, there you go. I want you to turn with me to the table of the Lord. We're going to celebrate that table in just a few moments. It's a blessing to hear that you celebrate it every week. The church I attended this morning in Kirkland celebrates it every Sunday. It's a great, great opportunity for us to remember and to celebrate. So I want you to return with me, not to that table, but to the original table. It took place on Thursday night of Holy Week. We call that Maundy Thursday. That was when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, different names that we have for it. So return with me to that table, folks. Who do you see sitting around that table? Who can you remember is seated around that table? It's even a scene we can easily picture. Wasn't it good of Leonardo da Vinci to take, take a photograph of it for us? You ever wonder why they're all sitting on one side of the table? I've often wondered about that. You know, it's almost as if someone said, okay, boys, line up for a photo. Uh, we're going to record this one for posterity. I want to make sure I see all your faces, too. So me and you, me and you, get in, get in line so I can see you. Who are these people at the table? We know some of them. In fact, we know 13 of them from the scriptures. There may have been more. There, it may have been some of their spouses there, some of their children, having Passover meal together. But we know at least these 13 were there. In fact, let's go to the next slide. I'm going to have you read with me, if you would. The texts, these are from Matthew 10, the first five and a half or four and a half verses. And then uh, several verses from the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26. So let's read it together. Would you mind? Let's do this. Summoning his 12 disciples, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus. Jesus sent out these 12. Now, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Now we're going to fast forward to the last week of, uh, of his life before his crucifixion. We're up to Matthew 26 now. When evening came, you'll, you'll recognize this, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed and he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. So that's just a reminder of, again, who these 12 characters uh, are seated around this table with, with John or with Jesus. And a lot of them, if you know this photo, if you know this picture, a lot of them. Their symbolic actions or positions of body or something on the table in front of them where, you know, uh, Leonardo had an idea of who he was painting when he was painting these folks. 
So I've asked you to picture this image with me at the original table of the Lord's Supper on, uh, at this Passover meal of what we call Holy Week. It's the night of Jesus' arrest, as you recall. Now, here's what I want you to do next. I want you to picture yourself seated at that table. Not hard for you to do. Look, the whole one side of the table is open. Just pull up a chair and have a table, have a seat at this table with these people. Lots of room there. You're with Jesus. You're among Jesus' disciples. I imagine when I ask some of you to do that, some of you are saying, no, I'm sorry, that's not a table for me. Um, I, I, can't, I can't be seated at that table. I don't deserve to be at that table. I can't compare myself with one of these rock stars, spiritual giants. They started the church. They changed the world. Ten of them were martyred for their faith, according to tradition. No, it's not my company of people. I can't sit here. Give me a, give me a place in another room. Don't ask me to sit at this table. But no, remember, I've asked you to return to the Lord's table on that Thursday night. These people were not yet those people. These disciples were far different from what you've just said. And they're more like us than I think any of us sometimes think. And so what I'd like you to do, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you to close your eyes and think about those people around the table. You start to envision them. Some of you know your Bibles pretty well. Some of you know at least that there were these 12 disciples that uh, were close to Jesus. And you know that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk a lot about these 12 and various stories associated with these 12. Close your eyes and think of those persons as I share with them. Share them with you just one at a time, very briefly. Yes, there across the table, there's Thomas. Thomas, oh yeah, Thomas. Thomas, he was the doubter. Maybe I can relate to Thomas. I doubt sometimes. Or, the, or that other time, Jesus was explaining so lovingly the way to get to heaven. And Thomas blurted out, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. How can we know the way? And it gave Jesus that marvelous chance to reply, Thomas, my friends, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. <clears throat> Thomas the doubter, Thomas the dense. Maybe I can relate to him. And oh, oh there, there's James and John. James and John, the Zebedee boys. The guys with the bad temper, the ones Jesus even gave the nickname to, sons of thunder, the hotheads. Those were the ones who wanted to call fire down to destroy those uh, who wouldn't listen to Jesus. You know, maybe I can relate to James and John. I have a temper too. Sometimes I even have a zeal for Jesus that can hurt other people. Maybe I can relate to them. And there, further on down, there's Bartholomew, a.k.a. Nathaniel. He had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. He's that one 
full of pride. That, that one that Jesus complimented that one time, and he received it like he deserved every compliment that Jesus, the Son of God, could heap upon him. Oh yeah, that guy. Pride, you know, pride is an issue for me too. I sometimes think I'm one of the really good ones. Oh, Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. The guy with the cruddy job. He may or may not have been a cheat. You know, my job's not that great, but, but at least I'm not a cheater. Hmm. Simon the Zealot. That guy might have even been a terrorist. Zealots, they were known for dispatching Roman soldiers when they could get them in a compromised position. That's bad. And there's Philip and Andrew. Those, those two guys were so curious about Jesus that they each asked someone else to come along with them when they followed Jesus. Philip asked Bartholomew and Andrew asked his brother, Simon Peter. I, I sometimes need people to support me too before I make a commitment. And that Philip, you know, wow, he, he was introducing non-Jews to Jesus long before anyone else. I imagine that got him into some trouble from time to time. Oh, right across from me are sitting Thaddeus Judas and James, the son of Alphaeus. We, we don't even know anything about these guys. They seem, in the Bible, they kind of seem the silent partners. Nothing's ever said about them. Yeah, sometimes I feel a little invisible, too. Maybe I can relate to these two guys. Then, of course, there's Judas Iscariot. Man, did he ever mess up. Controlling people with money, a betrayer, or at least totally disillusioned with Jesus, totally misunderstanding Jesus' purpose. And oh yeah, last but not least, there's Simon Peter. I feel a lot like Peter from time to time. Impulsive, loudmouth, braggart, thinks he's special. Hmm. Maybe Peter and I would have a lot more in common than I first thought. So if you close your eyes, you can open them now. That's the cadre of people who are at this table. So can you see yourself there now? Of course, of course we can. We can see ourselves there along with all the other sinners, the deniers and the doubters, the dense and the disillusioned, the curious, the angry, the invisible, the proud, the bad guys, the terrorists, the braggarts. Maybe we feel more at home now, seated at this table. It's always interesting to me how the Bible records the follies and the mistakes of Jesus' closest followers. And these were the guys who wrote, wrote it down, you know? 
biographers and autobiographers don't often show anything but their best foot forward, but not here in the Gospels. It's unabashed about their mistakes. There's no attempt to hide things, no attempt to spray perfume over the stink. You know, you look at these 12, and these are hardly the sort of people that you would gather around yourself if you were setting out to change the world. It's a bunch of losers at worst, or even at best, it is a bunch of truly ordinary people. But sometime after the table, you don't even have to fast forward, just a few days on now, Jesus Christ changed all that. And what did Jesus make of these people? Not a bunch of losers, but something that the Bible calls more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Not just ordinary people anymore, but transformed people who changed the world. And my friends, is that too much to expect of you and me today? I, I don't think so. Not as long as Jesus Christ is in the equation. Heard a sermon at my daughter's church a couple weeks ago. Not enough plus Jesus always equals more than enough. So later on today, or maybe sometime later this week, if you think of it, just take your Bibles out and thumb through the Gospels. Maybe, maybe as I was sharing those 12 apostles, disciples there, maybe one of them struck you as, okay, that's, I want to go back and think about that. Look up in your Gospels, get a concordance, or go online and, and look, look things up on the, on, online. Take some quiet time, pick one of the disciples for the very human trait that was portrayed in the Gospels that may relate to who you are, who I am. Name that disciple and try to think like that person before Jesus' resurrection. See, they, all of them, none of them got it. But then remember that it was that same disciple who, with Jesus Christ, eventually took the world by storm. Again, not enough plus Jesus is always more than enough. And so when you and I find ourselves overwhelmed by the mission challenge that is before us as Christ followers, when you and I are tempted to say, what kind of difference can I make? I'm just an ordinary person. Or, you know, what kind of difference can Lettered Streets Covenant Church make? We're just kind of ordinary around here. May I simply remind you of one thing. And if you hear only one thing in this whole message, hear this. Give me the next slide, please. Everything that we need to equip us to share Christ with others, we receive here in this church and at this table. What do we receive here in this church and at this table? We receive friendship with other ordinary, transformed people, and we receive friendship with God through Jesus Christ at this table.
everything we need to bring our world to Christ, we receive right here. We're receiving it tonight. Not just here in the sanctuary, we receive it down the hall in a few minutes as we go down there. Those who are closest to me know that I am something of a lighthouse buff. I used to drag my family miles out of our way to see a lighthouse uh, that I had never seen before. In the Midwest, yes, in the Midwest. Did you know that Michigan has more lighthouses than any other state in the United States? People on the coast don't tend to know that, but it does. There are hundreds of lighthouses on the Great Lakes uh, where I grew up. So imagine my delight moving to Coopville and four or five miles away, there's this great lighthouse called Admiralty Head Lighthouse. And I told Gail when this was going to finally be our home, I thought, I wonder if they need volunteers. So anyway, I'm a volunteer now. I'm a docent. I lead, lead it and uh, lead tours and talk to people about it. It's, it's a blast. I love it. But I have loved lighthouses because they are a metaphor for the church. It's not a perfect metaphor. You know, I don't know if there is a perfect metaphor. Maybe a mash unit is the perfect metaphor for a church because it stands in the place of trouble, but it moves to where the trouble is. That's a good metaphor for the church, maybe a little better than a lighthouse. But a lighthouse is a place that is guiding, it is directing, it is warning. Many of you know that there are two kinds of lighthouses. There's, there's a lighthouse that warns you of dangerous place to have a ship, uh, 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 shoals, rocks that are just below the surface or things like that. That's one kind. The other kind is a navigational aid. Admiralty Head is a navigational aid placed where it was so it could shine 20 miles out the Strait of Juan de Fuca and bring ships in that were going up the blasted west coast trying to find the entrance to Puget Sound. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. The Juan de Fuca, Fuca who discovered it, it went, I think, 100 years before someone else found it again. They were all looking for it, but they couldn't find it just because the way things are situated out there doesn't look like an entrance into anything. Navigational aid. That's what that lighthouse is. That's, that's what we are. We're a navigational aid. In part of my reading, I, I do a lot of reading about lighthouses. In my reading, I ran across an old quote from the 1600s in the official writings of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, one of the earliest colonies on the eastern seaboard. And it was considering building the very first lighthouse in America. And it ended up, they built it, and it, it was built in Boston Harbor, and there's still a light on that same rock. Uh, it's not the same light that was built in the 1600s, but it is the same place where that one was. Here's what the quote said. Give me my next slide thing, please. Nothing indicates the generosity, prosperity, or intelligence of a nation more clearly than the facilities which it affords for the safe approach of the mariner to its shores. All right? Makes sense to me. Generosity, the people are generous, prosperous, and intelligent who will put up lighthouses for the sake of bringing people in off the high seas. We get the image. Onshore people are safe and sound, but they're thinking of people who are offshore, struggling to get to where they are, and they could use some help. Can our outreach as a church, as Christ followers, be the exact same way? 
In fact, let me make some general substitutions of the words in our quote. Bring me up the next slide, please. Nothing indicates the generosity, prosperity, or intelligence of a church more clearly than the ministries which it affords for the sake of those who do not yet know Christ. I came to seek and save the lost. Who said that? Jesus. I came to seek and save the lost. If Jesus had a mission statement, this was likely it. And he commissions us ordinary people to do the same. We face large obstacles. Like the Titanic scene that we left earlier, while people die in icy waters around us, we are tempted to stay safe and dry and make sure no one rocks the boat. And yet, dear people, we forget that the boat is not ours. And our safety came only at the expense of that great one who put us in the boat, who himself overcame every obstacle with love and saved us. Will we hear the cries of the dying as Eva Hart did, the cries of the lost who need to be saved? It's an old word, but who need to be saved. Give me my title slide one last time. So this evening, I've asked you to consider two things, two images, a lifeboat and a table. This lifeboat and this lifeboat. This lifeboat. Lovely place. It's a lifeboat. Lettered Street's Covenant lifeboat. Come in out of the dangerous icy waters. On this lifeboat, we find not only our salvation, but we find friendship with Christ we find friendship with Christian brothers and sisters. Everything we need to help bring our world to Christ. Climb aboard this lifeboat. Last slide, please. But remember, this here lifeboat, this Lettered Streets Covenant Church has a number 14 painted on the side. Lifeboat 14. And we here together are on a mission from God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, my simple prayer is that while we are here tonight, we will not miss anything we're supposed to receive or that we will not hold on too tightly to anything we're supposed to release. So do what you need to do in us to bring those things into balance, the things we're supposed to receive and the things we're supposed to give up. Thank you for salvation that has perhaps come to everyone in this room, perhaps not. If not, you are calling and this is the boat. It's a good place to be. But thank you that for, for a number of others of us, thank you that, that besides you, there was someone in our lives who helped us get into the boat. 
Then for each of us, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to share new life with others. Oh God, let us be your people. Let us do your work in your way. In your saving name we pray. Yeshua, Savior, Jesus. Amen.